as we go to our scripture passage today, Paul is nearing the end of his life. This is the last portion of scripture that Paul wrote. He has been wrongfully imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. He has been abandoned by his friends, even most of his co-workers are no longer with him and no longer supporting him. Nevertheless, Paul retains his faith in the Lord, and despite hardship and adversity, he avoids disappointment. He retains his commitment to the gospel and to the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does he maintain his faith, but also retains his Christian character in responding to those who oppose him and the gospel. How we respond to life's trials and difficulties says a great deal about us. It is easy to wallow in self-pity. It is easy to let all of life's difficulties overwhelm us. It is easy to become disillusioned, especially with people, people that we have placed a lot of time and effort in, people that we regard as friends, who now aren't supporting us or standing by us or, or helping us. So the conduct that we exhibit at such a time really reveals our character of where we really are spiritually. And Paul gives us a wonderful example of how to respond to those who oppose us and the gospel. So that is our theme this morning. How do we respond to people who oppose us and the gospel? Well, first, we are to leave the dispensing of those that oppose the gospel to the Lord. My text really begins at verse 14. If you would look there with me. We begin by looking at Alexander, one who had done a great disservice to Paul. Notice verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Now, what exactly that harm is, we cannot be sure. The scripture doesn't delineate what that harm is. But most likely, Alexander was one that opposed Paul directly, probably stirred up people against him, and may even been one who brought formal charges against Paul at the trial. But he certainly is no supporter, that is clear. However, Paul is confident that the Lord will take care of the matter. Notice verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Now these words, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The first thing I'd like you to note there is that Paul is not seeking the Lord to repay Alexander. He does not say, may the Lord reward him according to his deeds. Paul is not stating a wish, a desire, or a prayer. Rather, he is stating a fact. He's not saying, I hope that the Lord is going to repay him for his deeds. 
He's not looking for vengeance. He's not being vindictive. He's not trying to get even with Alexander. But rather, he states a fact. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul had recounted his own life and then said, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. Paul anticipated that in the life to come, there was going to be a reward for faithfulness. There was going to be a reward for goodness. There was going to be a reward for associating with the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that his labor was not in vain. In like manner, he also knew that in the day to come, there would be a time of accounting. There there would be accountability. There would be standing before God and a time of retribution, just as there would be a time of reward. And so Paul says with confidence, and I also think to some degree with a heavy heart, as he thinks about Alexander, he says the Lord will repay him. There is going to be an accounting. Uh, There is going to be a comes-uppance, if you will, for Alexander. The Lord is sovereign. And it's always good for us to keep that simple fact before us. The Lord will see to it. The Lord will take care of it. The Lord is going to mete out justice. The Lord is going to right all wrongs. There's going to be a day of accounting. When good is rewarded and evil is paid. And Paul says, that day is coming. Again, not seeking vengeance, but stating a fact. Nor does he instruct Timothy to take vengeance upon this man. Paul is simply leaving the conduct and the activity in the hands of God. But he's reminding Timothy that God is aware God knows these things haven't happened in secret. Uh, Paul doesn't have to inform God of what has taken place. Uh, God is fair and fully competent of handling this situation. Uh, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Second, we should respond to those who oppose us in the gospel by warning others to be on the lookout for them. Paul writes to Timothy so that Timothy will be warned concerning Alexander. He is not just a threat to Paul, but to Timothy as well. Notice verse 15. Beware of him yourself. Beware of him yourself. Alexander is not just the enemy of Paul. Uh, Paul did not do something personally to Alexander to, to get Alexander's ire or dander up. This was not some dispute over, you know, property lines or because Paul looked at Alexander the wrong way or because Paul somehow snubbed Alexander. Uh, This was not just a personal feud between Paul and Alexander. But rather, he tells Timothy in verse 15, beware of him yourself. Why? For he strongly opposed our message. 
He strongly opposed our message. What the opposition was in the mind of Alexander was what Paul was teaching. That was the source of the ire. That was the source of the contempt. And that was the source of the accusations that Alexander brought against Paul. It was what he was teaching. And if you look at verse 15, we have the word our, for he strongly opposed our message. But there is not the editorial we. You know, sometimes uh, there is what is referred to as an editorial we when someone refers rather to themselves in the singular, but in the plural. Instead of saying I, says we. Instead of saying my, says our. But Paul here says not my message, but our message. But we're not to understand that as an editorial we. If you work through the passage, you will see where Paul speaks of himself in the singular. But here it's in the plural because it's not just his message, but it's Timothy's message as well. Therefore, Alexander is in opposition to both you and me, Paul says to Timothy. That's why Timothy needs to be aware. Because what he's opposing is the very same message that he opposes with Paul. Because Timothy and because Paul preached the same gospel, because they have the same testimony, therefore they have the same anatomy. And so he warns Timothy by saying that you need to be aware of him yourself, for he opposes our message. We need to understand that there are many who oppose the Christian truth and therefore oppose Christians. And it's not a personal issue with the Christian themselves, but with the message. And so when we encounter that kind of opposition, we need to make other people aware, for they are going to encounter it as well. Now, why does he tell Timothy this? Not so that Timothy can be quiet while he's around Alexander. <laughs> not so that he can soft pedal it, for he tells Timothy repeatedly throughout the book of uh, 2 Timothy to stand up, uh, to suffer persecution, to be willing to bear the hardship. No, he says it not to silence Timothy, but to prepare him so that Timothy would not be naive, so that Timothy would not be taken in, uh, so that uh, Timothy would not think that what is happening to Paul is unique to Paul. No, it's, it's helpful for us to be aware. And so we need to inform others of those who oppose the gospel and warn them uh, concerning their activities and behaviors. Third, we're to respond by praying and interceding for those who oppose us and the gospel. We are to pray and intercede for those that oppose and, and uh, us and the gospel. Notice verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. No one supported me. No one defended me. No one uh, was publicly willing to speak in my behalf. No one came to my defense. And then he says this. All deserted me. May it be not charged against them. May it not be charged against them. By whom? By God. Herein is true Christ-likeness. 
in following the example of Jesus who prayed for his enemies. Of course, when uh, we find in the scriptures that we are to pray for our enemies and those who despitefully use us, Jesus not only taught that, but practiced it when he hung on the cross and prayed and said, Jesus, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. He was praying for the soldiers at that moment. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That forgiveness that he's praying for is not soteriologically. He's not praying for them to be in heaven. He's simply praying, may God not strike them dead on account of their activities. They deserve to die that very moment. They deserve to bear the consequences of their sinful actions and their indifference towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he interceded and said, Father, forgive them. In essence, don't strike them dead. Don't make them pay in this particular instance for the evil that they had done. In like manner, Stephen, when he was accused and just prior to his being stoned, Stephen being the first Christian martyr of the New Testament, it says this, then they, that is the rebels, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Don't bring judgment upon them because of what they have done to me. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen prays. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. So too, Paul now prays for those who deserted him. Verse 16. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. I wonder... How do we feel when people desert us? How do we respond when we experience mistreatment? More importantly, how do we pray? How do we pray? Do we ask God to judge them? Do we ask God to bring them harm? Do we ask God to somehow make their life miserable? Look at what that person has done to me. Oh God, pay them back. A thousand times. You know, unfortunately, one of the common curses that we hear when we just travel in this world, and I hate to say it, but you've heard it, and people will say, God damn you. That's the non-Christian. That's the one who doesn't even believe in the reality of God and the reality of judgment. But their spirit is, may God damn you. May God get even with you. May God pay you back for what you've just done to me. May God curse you. May God make your life miserable. May you be a wretch because of what you just did to me. That is the absolute antithesis to the Christian response of, oh God, 
may it not be charged against them. May you not curse them because of what they have done to me. May you not make their life miserable because they have made my life miserable. May you not bring hardship against them just because they brought hardship against me. Well, there's an area where we really need to guard our hearts, have to guard our thoughts, have to guard our minds, and most importantly, guard our prayers. That we really are interceding for the well-being of those that somehow do us harm and evil. Fourth, we are to respond to those that oppose us in the gospel by conveying to others how the Lord is faithful and so different from those who fail us. Now, Paul wants to teach Timothy that when other people fail him, God has not. Though others may mistreat Paul, God has not. There is a strong contrast in this verse between the behaviors of those that have opposed and harmed Paul with the behaviors of God. Now notice these contrasts. First, the Lord stood by God, uh, excuse, excuse me, the Lord stood by Paul when no human stood by Paul. Notice verse 16. At my first defense, and if you're a circular of words in your Bible, or if you make notes, I just encourage you to circle, no one came to stand by me. No one came to stand by me. Circle that. And draw an arrow to verse 17. But the Lord stood by me. Exact same words. No one stood by me. But the Lord stood by me. It's a contrast to the behaviors of mankind with the behaviors of God himself. When no one stood by me, God stood by me. Jesus stood by me. He was my defense. He was my help. He was my stay. And he wants Timothy to realize that God had not forsaken him. God had not failed him just because people had. God was still faithful. God was still on the throne. The Lord stood by me. Second contrast. When others opposed the gospel message, the Lord caused the gospel message to prosper. Notice verse 15. Beware of him yourself. And now these words, if you care to circle. For he strongly opposed our message. For he strongly opposed our message. Contrast with verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, and now these words, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. The direct opposite. He tried to silence, but the Lord caused it to be shouted. The Lord caused it to be fully proclaimed. The Lord overcame. The Lord surmounted. The Lord brought to pass the exact opposite of what was Alexander's and other people's intent. They were trying to silence Paul. 
But God came and stood by him with the result that Paul was not silenced. That the gospel was not hindered. In fact, it went forth and was more broadly proclaimed than it had previously. And of course, in the book of Philippians, and we went through that not all that many months ago, Paul writes to the Philippians and talks about how his imprisonment was a furtherance of the gospel. How that the gospel actually prospered by Paul's imprisonment, even though that's certainly not what people intended. And of course, in the book of Philippians, one of the ways in which it was prospered is that even the Praetorian Guard, even the the highest uh, ranking soldiers in the army came to know the gospel and came to faith because they were guardians of Paul. And so it actually reached the palace of Rome, the gospel, because of Paul's imprisonment. Here he says, God has caused it to be mightily and fully proclaimed. And all the Gentiles might hear it. So God intervened. And then thirdly, the contrast of when they sought to have Paul killed, the Lord delivered him. Verse 17, last phrase. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Okay. So at his first offense, when no one was standing before him, and there was a decision to be made at that time as to whether or not he was going to have to suffer the death that so many Christians did, and that is to be having to fight against the lions, Paul says, I was spared. I was spared. I didn't have to fight the lions. God intervened, but it was that particular moment. Paul now comes to a place where he says, but I'm going to die now. But then, at that time, the Lord delivered him. Which brings us then to the fifth point. We're to respond by those who oppose us in the gospel in such a way that the Lord is glorified. The Lord is glorified. We're never to lose sight of the confidence that we have in our future hope. In verse 18, it says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into the heavenly kingdom. He's not saying that on every account I'm going to always be delivered from the lions. He's not saying that I'm always going to be released from prison. In fact, Paul anticipates his martyrdom. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He is expecting martyrdom. But as he thinks about his martyrdom, he is saying that God has still rescued me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into the heavenly kingdom. They may take my life. They can't take my soul. Which is Jesus' message. In the Gospels, fear not the person who can take your life, but rather fear the person who can take your soul. Paul says they can't rob my soul. They can't keep my spirit in chains. I'm going to be with God. They are not going to prevail against me. His earthly trials did nothing but secure in his own mind the reality of God's future deliverance. 
God will not rescue Paul from death as he had done previously. But God will rescue Paul through death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul says. God will bring him into his kingdom. He has confidence in God's goodness and abilities. Reminds me of the psalmist that says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. I love that verse, and uh, sometimes I use it when I go to the hospital. And I hope I use it fairly. Because really what it is saying is many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivers them out of them all. Many times he delivers in this life. But he always delivers in the life to come. Sometimes that deliverance comes by healing and restoration and walking out of a hospital. Sometimes that deliverance comes through death. But it is still a deliverance. It's not playing games. Okay? These are not just platitudes to satisfy and answer life's hardships or difficulties. There's realities to that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. A place where there's no more tears, no more sorrows. And you know the verses. Uh, Paul looks forward to that deliverance that God is going to provide him. And then... Next, Paul seeks the Lord's glory. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And then this, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul seeks the Lord's glory. And he seeks it in two ways. First, he seeks it, if you will, by prayer. By prayer. I believe that the amen there is, in fact, a prayer that is being offered unto God. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's asking that God be glorified. That God would be praised. That that God's name would be exalted and lifted up through these circumstances. Even as Jesus prayed as he thought about his own death, and he said, Father, glorify thy name. And the response from heaven was, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. But as Jesus thought about going to the cross, his ultimate concern was that God would be glorified. I submit to you that as Paul thought about all of the circumstances that he was going through, all the experiences that, that he was encountering, all the suffering that he was enduring, his ultimate concern was that God was going to be glorified in his death. That when it came time for Paul actually to be martyred, that he would die in such a way that God would be glorified. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know if you are aware of that paperback book, but uh, it's an amazing 
compilation of stories, accounts of Christians who have died for their faith, many of whom died at the stake in the period just prior to and during the uh, Reformation, as well as those back down through the ages of church history. But the accounts are amazing. For many of them are of people that are being engulfed in flames, singing praises to God, that are ascribing goodness to God and the effects upon those that are standing by and witnessing this kind of death. That's what I believe Paul is praying here. May God be glorified. May God be glorified in the way in which I conduct my life. We find here a tremendous intentionality. It wasn't just happenstance or circumstance that, excuse me, that Paul was responding the way he was. It was with the specific intent that God would be glorified. So he's praying that it may not be held accountable against them so that God would be glorified. He is telling Timothy to be aware so that God would be glorified. As always, that's Paul's ultimate and highest goal. And at the same time, this is once again an affirmation of faith. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, this is a statement that God is worthy of glory. That, 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 that God is glorious, if you will. That God is glorious forever and ever. Always has been, always will. That regardless of the circumstances that Paul is facing. He's saying, God is good, Timothy. God is glorious, Timothy. Never lose sight that no matter what happens, no matter how things may look, our God is worthy of praise. Never question his goodness. Never doubt his power. Never speak contrary to his wisdom. Never suspect his faithfulness. But give glory to God. Give God credit, if you will, for what he is doing in this circumstance. Paul wants Timothy to glorify God. And that should be our ultimate goal and desire in our life as well, that God is glorified in our conduct and that we convey to others that no matter what happens in our life, God is worthy of glory. Even in this instance, even in this particular circumstance, even right now, whatever the right now is in your life, 
God is still good. God is still to be praised. God is glorious forever and ever. That's a constant in the life, in the midst of life's inconsistencies. God is always glorious. Let's pray. Oh God, help us. Help us to respond in a Christ-like, God-honoring way to those that oppose us. Oh Lord, may we not seek the harm of those that pose us, but Lord, may we seek their forgiveness. May we seek your blessing to rest upon them. Oh God, may we desire better for them than what they have brought against us. May we realize that there will be a day of reckoning, there will be a day of accounting, there will be a judgment. Good will be rewarded, evil will be punished. Lord, solace us in that truth. Lord, I I pray that as we respond to others, that we would not only respond in that way, but, but Lord, that we would intercede, that we would actually pray, that, Lord, we would convey to others the reason for our hope and the dangers that face But most importantly, Lord, may we convey to you and to others a desire for the glory of God. May we choose to conduct ourselves in such a way that God is glorified. May we choose to respond as we should. May we choose to forgive. May we choose to pray. May we choose to have confidence. Not only, Lord, may we choose to respond in the right way, but Lord, inwardly, may we really respond truthfully in saying, oh God, you are glorious. You are mind-boggling. You are amazing. Though mankind fails us, Lord, you stand by us. Lord, though mankind opposes, you strengthen. Though mankind seeks to harm, you deliver. Thank you, O God, that one day we'll be in your kingdom, free from all the misery, hardship, and arrows of the evil one, enjoying blessing and peace and rest. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.